good morning, and thanks for tuning in to worship with us at First Baptist Church of Decatur. It is the second Sunday after Easter, or as we say in the church calendar, the third Sunday of Eastertide. And this week, the lectionary is having us look at Luke 24, um, where Jesus is appearing to um, his disciples after his death and resurrection. I have to say, digging into this passage this week was a joy for me because the narrative is so vivid and Luke really lets us in on how the disciples are feeling and what they're thinking. And it's almost as we're going on a journey with them as they are figuring out what exactly happened to Jesus. And it is a full journey of faith that these disciples go on over the course of a day in this passage. Through the course of these few verses, Jesus' disciples go from grieved, afraid, and confused to hopeful skeptics, to hungry learners, and finally to commissioned witnesses. It's a whole faith journey in one passage. Do you feel like you might fall into any of these categories? maybe more than one on any given day. I wanna dig a little deeper with you and see how each of us might relate to these followers of Jesus and how Jesus responds to them and meets them where they are. But first, let's remember our context. Jesus has been crucified in Jerusalem. Most of the disciples all fled because of a really valid fear that the people who might who killed Jesus might turn and come for them next. That was generally how Rome dealt with Jewish rebels or perceived threats to its power. So the disciples were afraid and they were in hiding. But they had heard rumors, strange and confusing rumors. Mary and the other women had said something about having seen Jesus. His body had gone missing. Jesus had appeared already to two of them, Cleopas and Peter, on the road to Emmaus as they hightailed it out of Jerusalem. So the group had surely heard some strange and confusing news, but I'm sure they didn't know what to make of it or how much of it to believe. Jesus had died and they could be next. That much they knew. So we find our disciples in a state of grief, confusion, and most of all, fear. Seeing their leader snatched up, betrayed by one of their own group, and tortured and murdered before a crowd, that was traumatizing and terrifying. They were afraid and so grieved for the man that they loved and followed and had did dedicated years of their lives to learning from and serving with. So they're trying to pick up the pieces of their lives and figure out what to do next. Maybe you've been there, grieved, head spinning, unsure of the future, afraid of all the possibilities. Maybe you're in a crisis of faith. When Jesus shows up among them, they are more than a little bit spooked. <laughs> Scripture says they are startled and terrified. And how does Jesus react to them in their state of fear? He engages their senses. I think this is really interesting. He says, look at my hands and feet. He invites them to touch him. He offers them real tangible 
proof that it is him standing before them. And it's only after Jesus assuages their fears that he can engage their logic and address their doubts. When our emotions are in overdrive and we're in crisis mode, we're not the most level-headed or rational or logical thinkers. And so Jesus has to calm them first. Isn't that true of all of us? When we are there mentally in a crisis mode or emotionally in a state of grief or fear, we don't want to be told logical silver linings or reasoned arguments. Most of us just need a hug or someone to hold our hands. It's me, Jesus says. Look at me. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. See, it's really me. He shows them his hands and his feet. I want to take a brief aside here to mention how in the other gospel accounts with Thomas, Jesus specifically points out the scars in his body as proof of being the very same Jesus they saw get crucified. It was a point of debate among early churches about the nature of Jesus's resurrection, whether or not he was a spirit or a physical body. And so this passage makes clear that Jesus wasn't just an incorporeal being um, or a misty ghost-like figure. As strange as it may seem to us and surely seemed to the disciples, his body is alive, raised from death, but bearing scars of what he had endured. And his body still has needs. Jesus is hungry in this passage. I think this is really interesting. It has important theological ramifications. It means that if we inherit Jesus's resurrection as our own, if Jesus's resurrection is a preview or a foretaste of what we will all experience someday, then God cares about our bodies and the needs of our bodies too. It's confirmation that what God made from dust in Eden and declared good is still good and is still what God intended. And it's still, it's still good, <laughs> including our scars and the pain and the recovery that they represent, societal beauty standards notwithstanding. But I digress. <laughs> the point, um, the original point I was making and the, the point that this passage uses is that Jesus's body, his Jesus uses his body, his embodied presence, to give comfort to his frightened followers. As they come down from their fear, they begin to believe what their senses are telling them, what their eyes are telling them, what their hands are telling them as they touch Jesus's hands and his feet. And eventually, as they come down from that fear, the fear turns to joy. Verse 41 says, while in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. So their bodies have accepted that Jesus is before them, but their brains are still doubting, still working it out. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Have you ever been a hopeful skeptic before? This feels like me on most days, if I'm honest. I wanna believe, and I, I do in my heart, that all, all that my faith tells me about a loving God and Christ's resurrection, 
is true, but at the same time, my brain has quite a few questions about all of it. It is the I believe help my unbelief sentiment of the desperate father who wants a, needs a miracle to heal his son. So it's like, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you understand? So this joyful disbelief is the feeling of receiving good news that you are too afraid to trust. I'm sure we've been there too. It's, it's receiving good news and not wanting to trust it for fear of the rug being pulled out from under your feet. It's like the love of a steadfast friend or a partner that feels too good to be true when we don't necessarily feel like we deserve it. This is a defense mechanism. It keeps us from looking foolish. It's the brain reeling in the heart saying, nope, not so fast. Have you been there before? <laughs> I know I have. I could preach a whole sermon on this verse. It is important because these are Jesus's most faithful followers and here they are struggling to believe even when offered physical proof. Faith isn't just a matter of never having doubts. It's being able to hold both joy and wonder, joy and disbelief, joy and confusion all at the same time. And Jesus doesn't shame them for this mixture of emotions. He gives them what they need to handle and process it. And see how Jesus addresses the doubts in their minds? He offers them rational proof. He says, watch me eat some food. It was uh, an established understanding then, you know, now as well, but especially then, that ghosts or spirits didn't have bodily needs like the, like uh, humans did, so they didn't eat. So he eats before them, offering their minds the proof that they need to accept that his body is really truly there before them. So he's not a ghost and he's not a spirit. It's just really Jesus. After they've received this second set of proof and the disciples can reasonably accept that However, it came to be Jesus is alive and in front of them. Jesus begins to engage their minds. He teaches them about the scriptures. He opens their minds and they are able to learn. Openness of the mind doesn't require full and total understanding, but a certain acceptance and willingness to suspend disbelief in order to understand and learn. Jesus helps them get there. Maybe they're still skeptical even as they learn. Maybe they have questions and Jesus answers them. But he teaches them about the scriptures, how they may have hinted about the resurrection, how Jesus manifests the character of God, how God's kingdom will look on earth, how God works behind the scenes to make sure to make everything new again. How resurrection waits for all of us. I can only speculate as to all the beautiful things that Jesus teaches his disciples in their time together, but I believe that he's feeding their minds what they need to strengthen and encourage them for the road ahead. The exact content of all that Jesus teaches them may remain a mystery to us as uh, the biblical audience, but 
I think the focus is less about what Jesus says and more about how Jesus moves his disciples through these stages of faith. From fear to joyful skepticism to a desire to learn and know more. And finally, to their commissioning as witnesses of what they have seen happen. Jesus has prepared them for what's coming and how he will use these flawed people to build his church, to take the reins and be brave and navigate the world after his ascension. This is only a snapshot of the faith journey of these disciples. They've been with Jesus. They've been learning all along and, and trying to understand and grow in their faith. But this passage really encapsulates the life of faith in its many stages. They're all present here in this narrative. At any given time, we may be in one or multiple of these phase, faith phases at one time. From crisis of faith to joyful skeptic to hungry learner to commissioned witnesses. The people who saw Jesus firsthand, who saw his many miracles, who started the Christian movement after Christ leaves, and they experienced all of the doubts and fears and questions we have today. And the beautiful thing is, Jesus doesn't make us feel bad about being where we are or having questions or fears or doubts. He simply meets us where we are and gives us what we need. What a lesson in how to treat each other how to treat ourselves when we find ourselves experiencing fear, anxiety, or joyful skepticism. <laughs> if Jesus himself doesn't shame us for these things, then why would we put that on ourselves? If Jesus himself does not condemn us for our feelings, then we should not condemn one another for the questions or doubts that we have at different junctures in our lives. God's kingdom is clearly able to survive our limited human capacities. Faith isn't just the steady life of growth and unshakable assurance. It contains ups and downs and crises and breakthroughs and everything in between. Wherever you may find yourself in that spectrum, know that you are not alone and that God is patient with us. As you can see, Jesus modeling here. Peter tells us that God is patient, wanting all to come to repentance. Isn't that beautiful? So you can exhale and be gentle with yourself and be gentle with others. God is gentle with us. I pray that you can be gentle with yourself and with others for maybe being at a different phase than you, wherever it is you may find yourself. Sometimes it can be frustrating to try and convince one another just to move past whatever fear or whatever doubt we have. That may not be the most helpful. Jesus here is modeling a helpful guide for how we meet one another where we are. As you go about your week this week, think about these things. Evaluate where you may be and where your neighbor may be, where your friends and family may be. Meet them where they are this week. One important way we see Jesus meeting his followers where they are in this passage and in many others is by eating together and sharing a meal with them. We, as the church, uh, experience this and practice this in a form ca 
call communion, some churches call it Eucharist, where we break bread and drink juice or wine together at, at church, hopefully in person sometime soon. But right now, um, we believe that it is just as holy and blessed to do it at home. So if you are in your homes, grab a little bit of bread and grab a cup of wine or juice or whatever you have on hand. And I will bless it and you can eat it as you watch this video or as it concludes. So on the night before Jesus died, he took, a, he took a loaf of bread, gathered together with his disciples and gave thanks and blessed it saying, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat of it, remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it and shared it with his disciples and said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, remember me. Join me in prayer as I bless the communion. God, we are thankful for the gift of your body that you did not turn away from the hard love of what love called on you to do. That you showed up to your disciples and continue to show up, a, up to us in different ways and that we can experience you in this communion. Bless it this morning or whenever we are watching the video that we may experience you um, as we taste and drink in tangible ways, knowing that your love is real, just as real as the bread and the cup. It is in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.